This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Women's University. Texas Women's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. Find out more at twu.edu health. And Texas Blockchain Summit. Join us in Austin to hear from senators, SEC commissioners, and policymakers about the ever-changing cryptocurrency markets. More at TexasBlockchainSummit.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for October 8th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this weekend, or this weekend, uh, it's Friday. It's almost I am also ready for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. This week, I am joined by uh, reporter Reese Oxner. Hey, Reese. Hi, sorry. That's right. And, uh, and reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. Hello. Um, all right. This week, I want to start off with the big news in the courts. Uh, Texas's near total ban on abortions was dealt a major setback this week uh, when a federal judge in Austin put a temporary block on the law. Um, this law, which, of course, bans abortions as early as six weeks um, when, you know, what the lawmakers who uh, who wrote the bill described as a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Uh, this b- essentially blocks lawsuits against people who are assisting in abortions as the kind of, which was kind of set up as the primary enforcement mechanism of this law. And uh, federal judge uh, Pittman basically coming in and saying that you can't temporarily do this. Reese, you have been kind of our legal expert on this and other cases uh, lately. Can you walk us through this order, 113 pages? I know there's a lot to it, but give us kind of the gist of what Pittman said and, and did with this, this late night order he put out. Sure. So Judge Pittman really um, kind of just uh, said that, that the, law, the, the law itself was not constitutional. It, he kind of disregarded arguments um, saying that uh, you know, the enforcement method is is legal and it should be stand because of this kind of enforcement mechanism and said it's ultimately affecting a person's constitutional rights. And so that's why he ended up uh, ordering all state courts and uh, including judges and court clerks to throw out lawsuits related to uh, SB8. And so right now that's where we stand. Uh, it is a temporary order and we're expecting an appeal soon. But um, as of now, uh, we're already seeing some clinics resume the abortions outlawed under SBA. Sure. I mean, and one of the big things that uh, your article raised at that night and that we've been kind of been watching otherwise is because of the unusual enforcement mechanism, right? The way they get around Roe v. Wade, which uh, kind of ensured a constitutional right to an abortion is that it's not the state that's acting on this. It's it's individuals suing, uh, you know, filing civil lawsuits and able to reap kind of rewards if, if um, the uh, people they are suing have been found to have, what is it, aiding and abetting in, in an abortion um, and things like that. And so, you know, the argument was it's not the state preventing these abortions it's these lawsuits um of course Pittman and you know many people who are opposed to this law you know suggest that this was just kind of an end around way of doing this but the big question here right is is what does this mean because if this is a temporary order of course 
if and when that temporary order goes away and the law remains in place in the long term, then presumably people could come back and sue for abortions or procedures that happened while that order were in place, right? Right, right. So yeah, the way that the law was constructed is to allow for those retroactive uh, lawsuits. Any any action after September 1st is uh, liable to a lawsuit um, as long as the enforcement is restored. And so we already saw the state of Texas the same night that the order was given um, signaled that they were going to appeal with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals which has uh, historically sided with more conservative policies. And so we've already seen that happen recently with SB8 and another lawsuit from the abortion providers where the Fifth Circuit uh, stayed all proceedings. And that case is still kind of in limbo until December. And so a lot of people are expecting if it does get to the Fifth Circuit that they may issue a similar ruling and uh, pause the uh, Judge Pittman's order allowing the law to resume and therefore open up all these clinics offering these procedures again to lawsuits again. Yeah. And, and what we've seen really is kind of a mixed bag from the abortion providers, right? We, we saw Whole Woman's Health, one of which runs four clinics in the state and, um, you know, clinics in other states um, saying that some patients who had, I guess, essentially been on, on waiting lists for abortion since this law went into effect, uh, you know, performing a few abortions, but other doctors within those clinics or that work with Whole Woman's Health, you know, saying that they're not ready to do this yet based on the kind of persisting threat about, uh, you know, of lawsuits that could come later. Uh, similar situations from other providers and things like that. I mean, can you, Reese, walk us through what the next steps are here? Uh, right now, we basically have a notice of appeal from the state, right? Um, right. Kind of where do we go? How does this play out, uh, you know, over the coming days, weeks? You know, I, I guess we don't know how long this could, could drag out, right? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to uh, expect when we might have further action. Uh, we, we did see the state signal that they're going to appeal. So they still have to file with the Fifth Circuit. Um, to get that appeal uh, in front of them and see if they'll take action on it. I haven't heard anything on that yet. I reached out to uh, the attorney general's office this morning to ask uh, if they filed and why not, uh, if they haven't done it so far, because a lot of people are expecting an immediate uh, appeal to be sought. And so once that happens, then we'll, we'll really be waiting to see what the Fifth Circuit says and if they're going to stay the temporary order. Um, if, if for some reason that we don't go to the Fifth Circuit right away, uh, Judge Pittman's court proceedings will continue uh, in district court. And so that's when we'll see uh, more arguments and hear more of his final order and something a little bit more concrete. Uh, it's really doubtful that we'll get to that point without the Fifth Circuit, uh, you know, getting involved somehow. But really, it's hard to expect when that could happen. And of course, we've seen the Fifth Circuit get involved around this law in the past, right, with, with other seats. Can you kind of talk, tell us about what the Fifth Circuit has already done, uh, you know, in the days leading up to this law going into effect? Sure. So uh, Whole Woman's Health, uh, along with some other abortion providers and abortion advocacy groups, um, had already uh, challenged SB8 prior to it coming into effect in the state. And that's what triggered action from the Supreme Court. Uh, which allowed, obviously, the enforcement of the law to continue. And so uh, as part of the original lawsuit that they filed, that was filed under Judge Pittman as well in uh, his district court. And that was appealed um, and brought to the Fifth Circuit, who basically just put a stop to all proceedings, canceled a hearing 
that Judge Pittman had scheduled and uh, essentially took over the case for now. And so until we get a ruling from the Fifth Circuit, it's uh, it's with them. It won't go back to Judge Pittman's court. And so we'll see. Uh, I think there is a hearing scheduled for in December tentatively. And so we won't really see any action on that, presumably until then. Yeah, and it's worth noting, you know, the differences between those two cases, that original case brought by abortion providers um, and, and other groups, uh, you know, Center for, for Produ Reproductive Rights, groups like that, this one brought by the federal government. But of course, in that original lawsuit, we saw, you know, we were going to have a hearing, it was blocked by the Fifth Circuit, and then it, you know, went to the Supreme Court, and we were all kind of waiting up late at night uh, that the, you know, before midnight, before that went into effect, seeing whether the Supreme Court would weigh in. Uh, and ult ultimately, what we saw was a decision not to, um, I, I believe, reciting that kind of jurisdictional issue, right, that you can't necessarily sue the state for this, because it's the, or, or no, that I guess the, it wasn't even the states, it was potential I don't know. Tell, tell, help. You are better at explaining this than me. Walk yeah, us through no kind of the jurisdictional difference between that original lawsuit and this one, which is brought by the, the Biden administration, right? Right. So in that original case uh, that we saw the Supreme Court rule on, uh, they, they did try to name a specific judge and also all judges in the mm -hmm. state, which one of the procedural questions that's raised is whether or not uh, the state's judges are protected under sovereign immunity. And so that's one of like many procedural questions that uh, the Supreme Court was alluding to as a reason for why they didn't rule on the law's constitutionally constitutionality itself and kind of uh, allowed it to take effect. The other uh, major factor is that the law hadn't taken effect yet and no lawsuits have been filed. And so some of the justices uh, had alluded as well to not having like a firm um, case to argue on, right? It's, it's more... They don't want to do on hypotheticals is, is the argument. And so now we have seen some lawsuits filed. Um, also, the United States doesn't have that sovereign immunity problem because uh, the U.S. can, um, it, it's the federal lawsuit can actually sue uh, some parties protected under sovereign immunity. And even though sovereign immunity has come in play with some state judges in the past, there are also precedents for where it, it is allowed by the court and in cases like constitutional rights. And so I think Judge Pittman made that argument uh, in his opinion, um, saying that, you know, that the United States had the jurisdiction to uh, bring this lawsuit against all state judges. And so that's why his order also included um, all of, uh, it basically enjoined all of the state judges in not enforcing or not accepting lawsuits related to SBA. You know, one of the things I find interesting about following this litigation as more as an observer than as a reporter uh, is that when you, I followed the lawsuits following the 2013 abortion law that Texas passed, you know, the one that sort of gained some notoriety because of Wendy Davis's filibuster of it. And in that litigation, there was a lot of sort of like on and off status, right? There were different lawsuits as well, challenging different parts of the law. There were times where things were allowed to go into effect and things, times that they weren't. But you know, in, in those lawsuits, it was kind of a more traditional argument, right? This idea of, is the state going too far in regulating abortion to where it creates an undue burden on people seeking that procedure. And it's been really, it's been really interesting to watch this litigation because obviously the law was designed to sort of circumvent those more traditional arguments, but the, the extent to which 
we could still see this law coming into effect and then out of effect. You know, when you were looking at that law, you were measuring how did access drop when the law was going into effect, right? How what's how did the number of abortions that were being performed drop? And and in this case, obviously there's still an extent to where we're going to see that, right? And, and we're seeing some of these clinics try to start up, but the, it seems like even measuring the impact as this is being litigated is, is difficult to to sort of do as a like hypothetical where you could see what it's like when this bill is in, when the law is actually in effect and when it's not just because some of these clinics are gonna be so apprehensive about opening themselves to that possible litigation. Um, and it's just, you know, the, this, it, this was all by design and it seems like it is playing out exactly the way that the proponents of this might've hoped it would. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, that that chilling effect, right, is a major trademark of this policy. Um, Texas Right to Life, which is a prominent anti-abortion organization who helped uh, draft parts of the bill as well. Um, some of their spokespeople I've talked to in the last few days are are kind of clinging to that chilling effect. Even if the TRO uh, stayed in place for an extended amount of time, they're really hoping that fear of future litigation will keep um, clinics from from pre- performing procedures. And we all we have seen clinics um, just stop pre- uh, performing abortions altogether, even ones that aren't outlawed under the statute. And so either way, uh, you know, anti-abortion organizations are counting that chilling effect as a major win. Yeah, and it feels like there's kind of two prongs of opposition to this law. There's the kind of more obvious, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade uh, abortion rights type uh, argument here about, you know, this this basically, you know, uh, there there is currently an established right to an abortion uh, under Roe v. Wade that uh, Roe v. Wade has not been overturned. And, and that is something that, uh, you know, remains true even as this Texas law case goes through the various courts. But then there's also the questions of the enforcement mechanism that are, are somewhat separate to this, you know, and then you've seen people recognize if, you know, could liberal states do use this strategy on, you know, things that conservatives hold near and dear to their hearts, like gun rights and things like that. Could you, uh, could, could this possibly, like, is there, are there constitutional concerns about setting up this kind of like private enforcement structure that go beyond the question of abortion? And of course, when the original case went to the court uh, and, and Chief Justice Roberts was in the dissent in the decision to, you know, not block that, that was something that he particularly raised, you know, and it'll be interesting to see this play out kind of in a parallel track with the Mississippi case that is also, you know, on its way to the Supreme Court uh, and is more of a kind of direct traditional challenge to Roe v. Wade. It's talking about a, a, a ban of abortions after 15 weeks, which is, you know, um, before fetal viability, um, which is kind of the current standard for, for, for Roe v. Wade right now. And I do wonder how these two cases will kind of play together because I think there are some people, including like maybe what we could see from Chief Justice Roberts, who are maybe more comfortable with the idea of questioning Roe v. Wade than they are comfortable with the idea of setting up a precedent where that kind of enforcement mechanism could be allowed. So uh, it's, it's a very kind of complicated and, and complex dynamic here. Reese, I mean, one other thing I wanted to ask you about this before we move on is 
it really seems like Texas state leaders continue to be pretty silent about this. I mean, if unless I'm mistaken, I have not seen a tweet or a press release with a statement from Governor Greg Abbott yet on this at all. I mean, are, are we hearing much from the people, you know, who are in large part responsible for this law going into effect, the, the, the lawmakers, the elected officials here? Um, I think we've seen just uh, more smaller statements, right? A lot of social media yeah. uh, chatter, but nothing really major. I mean, I think we're not seeing the kind of uh, like mass like celebration or like declaring this as a major party victory as we might have expected to see, um, which, you know, there, there's, I think a lot of it comes from it just being so in flux and uh, that kind of those pr- same procedural questions that were written intentionally in the law are still like questions we don't have answers to. So I think until we see something concrete, we might continue to not see a huge unified uh, like celebration of this because I think even even uh, both both sides see that this is kind of a loophole situation like it's being a law that's definitely operating in kind of a gray area. All right, thanks. Well, let's let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about redistricting. The Alamo. Thanks to the generosity of our donors, the Alamo is able to provide free programming and educational opportunities. Become a sponsor so that future generations will remember the Alamo. For more information, visit thealamo.org. And Texas Farm Bureau. Texas Farm Bureau offers a liability sign that meets the language requirements under the Farm Animal Liability Act. Get your sign today at txfb.us. Okay, and as we speak, the Senate is, I believe, meeting on the floor in the Texas Capitol, voting out congressional maps. They've already approved their own kind of state Senate maps. And as if all goes to plan, the House will vote their maps out on Tuesday, their, their 150 Texas House districts. Alexa, you are our go-to redistricting person. We talked in the previous TribCast about the numbers behind these maps and how they kind of solidify, if not you know, significantly, glo- significantly grow the Republican legislative dominance in this state. But today I want to talk to you a little bit about the process as we're now seeing these things really move through the legislature, get closer to being passage. You know, we're coming up pretty close on the end of this, uh, hopefully last legislative special don't session. say it don't say <laughs> it and i want to first by start by asking you about adam fultz someone you wrote a story about uh, that really kind of went up uh, almost uh, just a couple hours after last week's tribcast was posted tell us who this is and what he's what his role is in the redistricting process in texas right now Sure. You know, I thought your transition there was going to be that we've talked about the data behind the maps and now we're talking about the people behind oh, the maps well, well. because that that is who Adam Foltz is. Uh, you know, Adam Foltz is, uh, is the person that we have hired, that the state has, I say we because it's the state, it's state money, uh, that the state has hired to help draw the maps on the House side. He is a person who reports to Todd Hunter, who's the chairman of the House Redistricting Committee and who has control over what that chamber puts forth in in those maps and who gets representation and whatnot. But the reason we wrote about him is because he was part of the team that helped draw up Wisconsin's legislative maps last decade. You know, that was a year in which Republicans had taken control 
of the state legislature in many ways kind of bringing that state up to what is really the status quo here. And, and with that newfound control, you know, they created maps using a, a pretty secretive process. Uh, Adam Fultz was, was one of the legislative aides. They were working outside of the Capitol in a private law firm. They were meeting only with Republicans, no Democrats, and making them sign, uh, you know, confidentiality agreements so they would not discuss what was being said. There were emails as part of the litigation over those maps that showed that he was also being asked to help people prepare their testimony in support of the maps and kind of orchestrating some of the public support for them. And then, of course, you know, perhaps most importantly, a federal court found that those maps violated the Voting Rights Act, that they discriminated against Latino voters in, in two state assembly districts and needed to be corrected because of that. Uh, you know, and, and that was sort of the result of, of a process that the court said was, you know, quote, needlessly secret. And, you know, now this is someone that we have put on our payroll and that on sort of our initial reporting realized, you know, was someone who was also not really playing a public, you know, wasn't really part of the committee's public facing uh, work, what they had been presenting. You know, he was sort of working in this behind the scenes role and, and many of the committee members didn't realize that he was on staff or didn't realize that he was someone who was involved in, in this process. Let me ask, I mean, the there is a kind of, you know, a, a way a lot of people, I would say most voters would probably, you know, it, I, there's bipartisan support when you look at polls for kind of a more open, less politicized redistricting process. But in the reality that we live in, you know, except for in the states where they have kind of taken the politicians out of it, which Texas is not one of those states and there are, there are not many of those states out there. I mean, is this not just kind of par for the course? Like, is should we not just expect the party in charge to be kind of freezing out the other side here when they're, when they're drawing these maps? Well, I think this is complicated, particularly in a place like Texas, where the party in the minority is much more likely to represent people of color, right? And at the end of the day, redistricting is about representation. You know, I think, I think a lot of people politically, especially in sort of like political insider circles, uh, kind of focus solely on the political survival part of it for these lawmakers. But at the end of the day, the only reason we do redistricting is because of population growth, because we are trying to equalize districts so that everyone has adequate representation. And where things go hairy is when you start thinking about what that representation looks like for voters of color. Uh, and so I think that, that sure, it, probably a lot of people are thinking, well, sh this is a normal part of the process. But when, when you are thinking about taking up a process that leaves out certain people, and those are the folks who represent people of color, those are the folks who are more likely to be people of color, you know, you end up creating, you end up sort of fostering a process that is, is much less about representation and more so about political manipulation. And, you know, you could argue that there's an extent to which the courts have said that that's okay. Um, but at the end of the day, we we have we are now we have someone on the state payroll who was found to have drawn maps that discriminated against Latino voters. And when the when Chair Hunter was asked about it at the at the House's redistricting committee, he said he didn't even inquire about his work in Wisconsin. 
Yeah, that was that was a very interesting quote of, uh, to to think that you wouldn't uh, kind of do the background check. He, what he said, he he hired him for his statistical skills or, or something like that, as opposed to uh, you know the work that he's previously done on redistricting, um, which is an interesting thing. You know, I, I want to flag a different, another interesting quote for you in uh, in in this uh, legislative session as as we saw the Senate taking up uh, maps. Uh, I believe was that earlier last or earlier this week or last week the the days have melted what upon is, them what is what a time Matthew, exactly in a but, redistricting session yeah you know you 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 really saw Jane Huffman kind of making the push talking about uh, you know how she's drawing these maps kind of from a race blind perspective and and we also uh, heard uh, Todd Hunter in the House you know kick off one of his hearings. Uh, in the legislature, really kind of stressing, uh, you know, pushing against the, the the way you know certain media outlets, particularly the Texas Tribune, have really um, uh, analyzed these maps, looking at kind of the breakdown of the races of people who are eligible to vote in the state, as opposed to kind of the broader population. Um, I mean, what are you seeing, kind of, about the? Um, the, the kind of strategies that Republicans are are raising here and, and kind of the way they're describing the work they're doing and how that kind of may or may not conflict with, you know, the expectations that are set for lawmakers when they're supposed to supposed to be redistricting. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the main takeaways from from the last few weeks is that it's so clear how all roads sort of lead to litigation in, yeah. in any of these conversations about redistricting. And, you know, you mentioned on the Senate side, uh, Senator Huffman has talked about drawing up these maps without even looking at any sort of racial data. And, you know, in just this morning, she has sort of clarified that, that while the maps were drawn race blind, they did consider race when the maps were sort of sent to the lawyers to make sure that they, you know, passed the the Voting Rights Act. And but it was it was sort of a jarring moment to hear her kind of say that over and over again because while you are not supposed to solely rely on race unless you're creating kind of new opportunity districts, the law still requires for you to to consider it, right? To acknowledge it, to determine where are the places that you have to draw these new opportunity districts. Where does the Voting Rights Act actually require for you to consider that? And, but you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, what we're hearing from them is that there is sort of a movement not limited to Texas of lawmakers saying, well, you know, we're not looking at any of the racial data in any of the map making tools that we're using. And it's really, uh, you know, to be able to shield themselves from the eventual litigation, which will include very likely claims of intentional discrimination, right? When you're looking at districts, you can look at the effect of the lines that were drawn and whether they discriminate against voters of color, but you can also look at the intent that lawmakers of lawmakers in drawing up those maps. And that's a pretty important one because if there are any findings of intentional discrimination, those will help pave the way to try to get the state back under the federal supervision it used to be under for redistricting to make sure that those maps are, are kind of approved by the federal government before they, they're enacted. So um, we've seen a lot of that on the Senate side. You know, on the House side, it's a little bit more, it's like a bit more nerdy in some ways where we've seen, uh, you know, Todd Hunter talk about assessing whether people of color have enough opportunities to elect their 
representatives by looking at things like voting age population, which is, of course, everyone who's 18 and older, and, and not looking at citizen voting age population, which is actual eligible voters, because if you're not a citizen, you're not actually eligible to vote. And the reality is, is that he is sort of pushing back on any claims that these maps pull back on these majority Hispanic eligible voter districts or majority Black eligible voter districts. But the, the thing is, is that the law requires you to consider citizen voting age population. That is the legal standard by which the courts will determine if these districts pull back on those opportunities for voters of color. And he has sort of pretty clearly stated that that's not something that he is considering or at least uh, prioritizing. Yeah, of course, I mean, as, as you have pointed out to me before, the um, the basis when, when evaluating these maps is not whether they intentionally discriminated. If there is a you know, negative effect on voters of color, you know, in terms of representation, of course, you know, meeting certain guidelines, then, then that in and of itself does not pass the muster. So in that way, you do have to look at those racial statistics, those racial numbers in order to, you know, evaluate whether these will hold up and, and are, you're kind of checking off the boxes that you need to check off in order to create legal maps. So uh, Alexa, what, you look like you want to say something. Well, I was just going to say that, that I think it'll be interesting to the extent to which, you know, someone like Todd Hunter saying, I'm looking at voting age population and not citizen voting age population, which allows him to create fewer districts with majority Hispanic citizen voting age population, for example. Like I, I do, I am curious the extent to which we'll see even that play out in uh, litigation in terms of claims of intentional discrimination because he is sort of intentionally using a different measure than the one that is actually used to secure opportunity for voters of color. So, I mean, these things are separate but they're intertwined in, in so many ways when, yeah. or will be when we get to the litigation portion of this. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're coming up in the final couple of weeks of this. What are we, what are you watching as, as we, we, draw this to a close i mean what is uh aside from you know what what we expect will be somewhat minor changes between then and now to the actual boundaries of the map is it is this all about setting up litigation is it is it whether they can actually get it through in the the time they have to do this what's where's the tension these these next few days and weeks yeah, I mean, I think I think if you think about this procedurally, there are questions as to whether what the House is going to do on the congressional side. The Senate has been moving a bit quicker. You know, they are today voting out their congressional map. They've already sent over their chamber map, which the House probably won't touch. But I think there's a question of whether the House will sort of just accept what the Senate did on the congressional map or whether they'll want to do their own work on that. Obviously, they're running a bit farther behind, you know, they're, they've got 150 districts to deal with, whereas the Senate only has 31 on, on their chamber map. So I am curious in terms of getting this done in one special session, whether the House will, will move toward just accepting those districts. You know, during their committee hearing, Symphonia Thompson, the state rep from Houston, asked Todd Hunter, you know, what's the timeline to take up congressional districts in this committee? And he was very vague about it. So I'm not sure what that pretends in terms of our hopes of getting this done in one special session. Um, but beyond kind of the procedure, you know, I think that the next, what we're seeing right now, literally at this moment in the Senate and what we'll probably see next week on the House floor are the ongoing discussions about representation for voters of color. And a lot of the questions can kind of seem repetitive and there's a lot of very technical questions that are happening, but 
what's what's really going on is sort of the building of the legal record, the things that we will see play out in litigation. And I, I'm not sure how exciting the next uh, you know week and a half may be in terms of some of the actual debates on the bill. Uh, but you know what we're looking for is sort of the the responses from Republican lawmakers in charge of the process when when questioned about why they haven't created new opportunities for voters of color despite that growth and, and that sort of continues to be kind of at the forefront of any of these discussions. All right. Well, we will be keeping an eye on it, but I think that's it for us today. Uh, thank you to Reese, Alexa, and Justin. Thank you to our sponsors, Texas Women's University. Texas Blockchain Summit, the Alamo, and the Texas Farm Bureau. We'll talk to you all next week. Do